Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We have a slightly different lineup for you today. As you can hear, it's Zach here doing the standard thing on presenting duties, but I am joined by Sam Jolly. Sam is somebody who you may have heard down the pub on a few occasions. She's recently joined the History Hack down the pub slash Nazi Titanic Tudors chat that uh, exists our guest today is looking at me thinking i've gone completely mad for those of you who aren't familiar with what this nazi titanic sex tutors chat is it's basically those of us behind the scenes at history hack who got together one day and decided that the best way to sell stuff was to have either the word titanic nazis sex or tudors in the byline and instantly all of your history stuff will do incredibly well because it just seems to be history clickbait. So Sam is one of that wider team. She's a assistant creator at the Royal Engineers Museum over in Kent. And she's joining us today because this one is very much in her lane. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm normally only trusted to prop up the bar down the pub, but I see you have a museum themed one. So you summon in your resident friendly curator. Hello. So who's our guest today? What are we looking at? Um, introduce everything for us. So today we have with us Jane Henderson, a professor of conservation at Cardiff University, who's the author of countless articles, papers and reports on looking at it, pretty much everything you want to know about museum conservation. So ranging from issues of pest management uh, to the preservation of archaeological sites. Hello, Jane. How are you? Hello, I'm, I'm all right. It's been a, quite a day, but quite excited to be joining you on the History Act. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, let's kick things off with the basics. For a lot of people, conservation probably means uh, preservation or protection, such as wildlife uh, conservation. But within a museum context, it's far more complex than that. Can you give us a sense of what conservation actually involves within the museum sector? So I guess that compared to um, 
um, wildlife conservation, it's no more or less um, complex. Um, but in terms of the museums, um, we certainly have, um, we have a lot to run. We have a lot of things to think about because what we're looking at within museums, historic houses, historic libraries and archives is how to get the best out of a collection, which is really a fixed resource so that there's so much pages you can turn. There's only so much light you can put on something before it fades. And we're kind of familiar with that where, you know, you've had a, a precious jumper for 20 years. You kind of know it's at its end. And if you're really organized, you might turn it into a hot water bottle and keep it you know, cover for another few years. But what we're trying to do in museums is make those decisions not as a person or as a family, but on behalf of society. So we'll be looking at things and thinking, what's the best way that we can use this so that other people get a chance to, to use it too, either other people in other places or other people in the future. And certainly in the past, conservation was very much about how do we make sure that people of the future can see things from the past in order, you know, to understand their presence. And that was certainly how we always used to characterize conservation. So in a sense, not that different, different from animals in the sense of, um, you know, you don't want to um, see the depletion of a species um, because people would want to see them. But I think there's also something that we're increasingly realizing is that the collections have real value. They have collections of real value in terms of sustainability and sustainable living, but also the messaging about keeping things as I think an incredibly important political message at the moment. Does that help? It definitely does. I mean, there are so many questions that we're going to have coming off of the back of this. I guess one of the, the first things to think about here is challenges, and there are lots of these. So I'm going to ask a kind of unhelpfully open-ended question here, but talk us through some of those challenges of conservation, because there's a whole range of them through from things like you know what gets kept uh, slash salvaged through to just the the physical art uh, of conservation to just just try and give us a sense of the different challenges that are out there the, the the balls if you like that conservators have to keep juggling i think that probably conservation started around people who were brought in as technicians and um, who were, were helping to fix things or repair or replace things. And there was quite a sort of a craft and an art around that. And you'll see that if you, know, if you look at the paintings, for example, where you can see that they've been retouched, fig leaves added, things taken away, edges recut and so forth. And the same with, with wall paintings. And that's been going on, I think, probably as long as art or history has existed. There have been people annotating the margins of books or rebinding them or adding their, you know, version of it. For conservators, I guess our challenge is less been adding a bit of ourselves and more trying to carry that thing forward. Or at least that's been what we've seen perhaps in more recent times. And the challenges then can be things like stopping decay. So basically we're fighting entropy, so we're never going to win that one. Um, so we're trying to stop the inevitable. But what we can do is change the speed at which things happen. So... It's a little bit difficult to think about it, but what we're going around is doing is saying, we're going to have this fall apart at a rate that we're trying to be in control of, or a rate that we find acceptable, so that perhaps not have it fall apart straight away in the first time that you use it. So we're doing those things, and we're also trying to investigate things if you have found archaeology, 
If you pick something up on the foreshore on an excavation, it might be the information is hidden under corrosion layers, for example. So we might be removing surface layers. But it might be if you find something on the foreshore, for example, um, like the mudlarkers might find a leather shoe, you have a very, very short amount of time before it will really just dry up and become unrecognizable and unusable and ununderstandable. And that can be a small leather shoe because can also be a massive ship like the Newport Ship Project and some of the ships have been found all around the UK. So that comes a huge problem of scale, just preventing the thing from collapsing in on itself because so many of the structural elements have decayed. And then there's other things that we might do. You've, you know, you tend to see this uh, with paintings conservators who investigate and they discover that underneath the layer there was a different hand or there was a different character or something's been changed and it gives people a chance to think about what that meant. Um, we, we want to know things like people want to know, you know, what pigments people were using. And also, you know, was this really by the artist? Are these even the pigments that that artist were using? And I think um, people also work with, say, natural science conservators. There might be a specimen or an animal that this was a species that was collected. And we might now be looking into DNA and evolutionary issues and perhaps what evidence of climate change might be carried inside of that. There's so much evidence there's so many questions we haven't asked yet about collections that if someone's taken the time to systematically collect all of the ladybirds of a particular county for the last 200 years, then one day somebody will ask a question. But ladybirds are not easy to keep alive, you know, not keep alive, but not at least easy to keep because other little pests will be trying to eat them. They'll be fading, they'll be cracking with humidity. So even if we're not investigating, even if we're not filling them up with something to strengthen them, we'll still be trying to stop the ravages of light and, and stress cycles from damp and drying and things like that. So there's quite a lot. And then, of course, there's people who, who want to do stuff with the collections, which they pretty much are there for, but sometimes they want to take a, a sample or a piece or they want to put them on display in a shopping centre or they want to put them on display in a gallery. And all of those decisions have are decisions about choices and sharing and, and stuff like that. So that's all. I mean, those are some of the challenges. If I want to do something really sort of big conceptual stuff, there's also, you know, if you get given something from your granny and it's really, really precious to you and it's got a, a stain, it's a book and she always turned the pages in exactly the same way. And she had a favorite hymn because this is now a hymn book, I've decided. She always opened it in a certain page and it always falls open in a certain place. All those, the way that that history is written into the physical thing, the, the corner of the page that's folded, the, the way that the spine is slightly broken, the extra finger marks in a particular area, they're all story, but they're also what things people call damage. And we have to navigate, you know, what is your damage? What's other people's damage? What is history? What's evidence? And that can actually be quite tricky. Yeah, we, uh, we, we have some examples of that in our, our Royal Engineer collection, actually. We've got some fantastic uh, sort of books of books, hand-drawn books on fortifications from the 1600s, but then Victorian Royal Engineer officers during their studies have annotated. So on the one hand, it's, it's kind of graffiti. Then on the other hand, it's actually now a, a, another story in itself. So I've got very mixed emotions when I, when I look at that kind of object. Yes, and I think we need to think a lot more about what we value and think because we use some words like damage and graffiti and they they already contain within them you know we've already decided we don't want those things but when we really think about it some of the you know some of the best stories are in the graffiti and the damage aren't they and and even now the graffiti when you look at your banksies the graffiti is the story you know so we 
if you try to have very fixed ideas about what's right and wrong and very sort of descriptive codes of practice, then you end up, I think, taking some pretty rubbish decisions. Whereas if you try to engage and discuss, then you take forever to make decisions. So you're always kind of caught in and you never make everyone happy. You know, there's no happy way out of these um, situations. But, uh, you know, we could do better, I think. The uh... Probably the currently most famous example of, of the type of thing we're talking about here is the um, Coulston statue in Bristol, whereby it's still got the graffiti on it from the protests and, and went on display in the M shed uh, as, a, as a piece of as a piece of contemporary history now. Um, what do you feel about that? I think that the work that the, the team did, particularly Fran, I think is is really interesting and really sensitive because you know you've got you just you're making a decision, aren't you? That statue told a story in the town it told a story of what the town thought about Colston about the fact they made a statue to him and then it told a story for many for a couple of decades about a town that argued about you know whether they should be celebrating Colston which ended with real evidence that the town had not made you know people had not come to a decision that on which they all agreed because when people start pulling statues down you know you you know that there there is no sort of um, universal answer and I think the response to the statue coming down and being thrown in the river and the sort of social in the, into the water and the social media response to that was such that it became very obvious that that story was as important as anything which went before. And I think it was it was good that the museum told that story. They took out some of the sludge. They took out some of the things that would cause it quite a lot of instability. But it was displayed with placards and with stories and the paint still on. I'm sure in time we could take that paint off. The question is, should we take that paint off? And I don't think that's entirely the conservator's decision. You were, you're a curator, obviously, Sam. So you'll be making those decisions, hopefully, with your communities. And that, isn't that exciting that museums can be the place where the communities at last resolve some of these things, which have clearly been so badly sort of handled within the public sphere um, up to that point? Absolutely, absolutely agree there. And um, just touching back on some of the conservation types that you were uh, talking about a few minutes ago, I'd just like you to explain the difference to listeners between uh, preventative conservation and remedial conservation, because they're two very different things. And you're an expert at both of them. And you touched upon them uh, a few minutes ago. Well, yes. So if you have something, um, to, uh, I don't know why we always talk about a chair, but if you have a chair with a missing leg, then you may want to restore that leg, put a new leg back in, in place. If there was a um, piece of missing wallpaper in the house, you might want to put in a new piece. So we tend to call that restoration. Then you might have something which is quite unstable. So perhaps the fringing on the chair, the fabric on the chair is beginning to lift or something like that. And you might do dye a net um, and then stitch that netting almost invisibly on to just hold that fabric down. And that's what we tend to call interventive conservation or remedial conservation, where we're touching and, in, you know, getting our hands on, getting our scalpels in, getting our needles out, getting our spatulas or our brushes. And we're doing something to the physical, tangible manifestation, manifestation of the object. And that's super satisfying honestly I mean it's just you know if you like doing jigsaws you love that sort of work if you if, and it takes a certain personality as well to do it but you know it's just so calm you know it's so calming it's so zen you just sit there and you just have a relationship with an object I worked on one tiny little object for a whole year and people were like how is that not driving you you know round the bend and it's just like I was just in the zone with this object 
But then what happens is you can also say, look, breaking things, you know, it's not the best way ethically. It's not the best way financially. Wouldn't it be better if we just didn't break the stuff in the first place? Wouldn't it be better if we didn't get paint on it or we didn't fade it? And that's preventive conservation. So that's changing the environment to look after it better. So, you know, if you've got precious things that you've been left, try not to keep them in the garage if your garage is a bit damp. Maybe keep them in the spare bedroom if there's no heating on in there, that sort of thing, where just the being a bit cool but still dry will keep them for longer so that you can use them for, for longer. Um, I was recently looking at some um, books in my mum's bookshelves and she had one that was read when she was a kid she really valued it and there was signs of a very evil woodworm crawling in the zone so we were doing preventive conservation measures to make sure that that woodworm did not start eating her one of her favorite childhood books but we probably will need to get it rebound because it's quite old and quite delicate if she wants to turn the pages and read it to other people and that will be interventive or remedial conservation <laughs> One of my one of my uh, most and least favourite parts of preventative conservation at the same time is bloody pest control and bugs. And I'm I'm known in my house for uh, if I see a moth, I'm I'm just a moth serial killer. I will kill it. I will not let any moth bugs uh, moth um, eggs get on my clothes and go to my museum and eat my collection. Uh, and uh, I've also been been known weirdly one of the proudest moments and also one of the saddest moments of work was when I successfully identified some spider poo on a fabric trap, having absolutely never, ever seen any spider poo before. Could you tell listeners a bit about uh, pest management? I thought you were going to say how to identify spider poo. I'll leave that with you. <laughs> <laughs> At last, I've thought of a reason to hit one of the key words um, for today's podcast. So pest management is all about knowing about their lifestyles. So you can see where I'm going to go with this, Zach. So you have to understand um, the life cycle of pests in order to really, you know, in order to to deal with your enemy, you have to understand them. So you understand where they want to lay eggs, you understand what they eat, you understand where they emerge, and then you understand where they want to go and have sex. Yay! So, um, and that is normally outside in the sunshine, and who can blame them for that? So what we try to do with pest management is disrupt their life cycles. We try to make it too cold for them. So that's keeping things cold, and if something's infested, you might even put it in the freezer to kill them off. We might take away forced sources of food, so that's often done by a lot of rigorous cleaning and really dull things like cleaning chimneys <laughs> and taking the edge tool of a hoover around. I'm like, you can't just hoover a room in the middle of the room. You've got to take the edge tool and otherwise the pest will all live there then it's things like really simple things like checking things before you bring them into the building so you know thinking about bringing foods in not getting waste away from the house so real old-fashioned housekeeping and a lot of people have really returned to very traditional housekeeping methods and you can even use things like um you know herbs like putting fresh lavender out, which we kind of know from the olden days, lavender bags and cedar balls, things that act as a slight deterrent. So, you know, you, you can deter them, you can cut off their food supplies, you can cut off their entrance to your building by closing the windows, putting up mesh, putting tops of your chimneys, and then you hunt them down, exactly as you said, Sam, you hunt them down, put out little sticky traps everywhere for them to walk on and we catch them. Once we identify where they are, we hone in and see if we can find where they're breeding. Perhaps use pesticides, really try to keep that to a minimum because, you know, pesticides tend to be pretty bad for, for people and we want to do as little of that as possible. So where, where we do find them, we often try to kill the insects through and um, taking away the oxygen or by taking away the temperature, occasionally by raising the temperature to a temperature that kills them. And that's 
selectively done depending on what the thing you've that's invested is made of because you would clearly not raise the temperature of something that was made of wax for example because then it would all melt away and you'd end up with a sludge but if you were lowering the temperature on something you would be able to manage it so it doesn't get damp so you don't get mildew at the same time so yeah we hunt them down and we eliminate and then we continue to look for all of their relatives um, and, and um, if there's any sign of any pest infestations we move in and try to, to manage and control that and that's a lot to do with not letting museum staff eat lunch in their offices, which always ends up in a big old battle. They this have it. Remarkable. Museum curators are, uh, are violent, violent people towards bugs. <laughs> yeah. I think we should subtitle this episode, The Murder and Sex of Insects, Conservation, all about the murder and sex of insects. There we go. Um, perhaps we'll see if that boosts the, uh, the analytics for this episode. Can I, I'm going to be very kind of irritating and self-indulgent here. Can I talk about mould for a mm. second? Because mould does my head in. I live in a house that was basically built on a meadow. The foundations aren't brilliant. And we have this relentless battle with mould to the point where I stick all of my books in the nearest thing I can create to a controlled environment, which is basically to take my entire bookcase and stick it in boxes because I've had books out and they just get plastered in mould and they're ruined after about five years. So how do you deal with something like that? Is it as simple as environment control? Is it a case of siting buildings in places where um, they're, they're less likely to be affected by these issues? Is it a case of preventing contamination? So keeping things that are already mouldy to some degree away from others or, or is there more to it than that some bold spores they, that's that's a battle you're never going to win zach they are everywhere thousands if not millions of them everywhere damn it damn it so no amount of chemicals realistically that you're going to live with uh, unless you live in an ethanol bath and you know there are pluses and minuses you didn't have alcohol on the list of four but you know if you live permanently in a bath of ethanol you might be okay but generally no you're not going to get rid of the mold the mold um so you don't want to put your moldy book in um, an envelope with a bunch of other moldy books, but really that cross-contamination isn't the critical thing. What's critical with the mold is two things. It's the amount of moisture and how, st how still it's able to sit. So in your house, the things that I would be looking at are, do, do you dry laundry in the house? If you hang, hang laundry over the radiators, then that's a really good way of pumping um, moisture into the air. And then if you have single glazed windows those windows will be really quite cold and on the surface of those windows water droplets will form and then you have really really damp conditions and those damp conditions are what causes mold i love psychrometric charts and that's probably the antithesis of a hashtag or an exciting word it's kind of the opposite they're curly line graphs that show temperature and relative humidity and absolutely adore them because you can plan and work out what's going to happen but to be fair it really is the ultimate nerdery to to get these things out but what you can see is that if you've got a cold spot so if you've got an outside wall and your bookshelf is against it which it really often is then the back of your bookshelf is going to be one of the coldest places in the room so even if your room is quite comfortable if you are um, if you've got an ensuite bathroom or you're drying laundry on the radiators, there's moisture in the air and it gets behind your bookshelf. The coldest place in the room is the wall and it forms to moisture levels of 
very, very damp, which is 70% relative humidity or above. So humidity is like 100% is completely damp. You're in a sauna. 70% is still very, very damp and you're going to get mold. And especially if it's left there to not to move, if, it, if the air isn't moving. So things that people can do to, to battle mold is they can ventilate in a very targeted way. So perhaps if you've been heating your house because it's moldy, then ventilate just as you're leaving the house and give a real good fresh air blast through. Because even when it's wet outside, if it's cold outside, it's normally actually drier, which is really counterintuitive. But, you know, don't do it if it's actually bucketing with rain. But you let a bit of winter air in just before you go out. And that will actually w- wash out a lot of the damp air that's in your house if you've been producing moisture. And, and make sure you've got air movement. So have you got... Um, I've got a wardrobe and I don't know about anybody else, but I've sort of folded up clothes I'm never really going to wear again, but I can't bear to part with. And they're shoved into the back of the wardrobe. So if there's ever any damp in my house, it's always in that, you know, I move that bag and there it is because I really don't need to keep them. They trap the moisture. They're right against the corner of the house. um, And I hardly ever move them. So it's just like the perfect storm for, for mold. But it's not really because the next to something else moldy. It's mostly because it's a bit cooler, it's the dampest, and there's no air movement. Which is a bit kind of, of a dull answer, isn't it, Zach? But it's the truth. <laughs> I think that's the first time in one of these interviews that I've actually taken notes on uh, one of our guest responses. Um, I won't let our listeners in on um, how many of those faux pas I'm making. We will move swiftly on, um, partly because I'm making most of them. Um, one of the really interesting challenges, for me at least, when it comes to conservation, is that decision on what is a priority for conservation and what happens when something is in too poor a condition to be salvaged. Can you talk us through that, proce- that process of sort of what stays and what goes? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of times in museums, and I, I imagine Sam will say this too most of conservation interventive or remedial conservation is done for exhibitions so that you've got an exhibition planned and you want things to look not neglected so that is a big driver so if you've got you know if you've got a big blockbuster coming up or there's always a thematic thing isn't there we'll have another round of olympics type exhibitions shortly and people will get things out that, that that cover various anniversaries so those things drive the conservation priorities a lot then if you've got a conservation team or a conservator, they'll be trying to drive priorities in other ways as well, normally by doing surveys and saying, right, we've looked at all the collections or we've looked at a sample of a collection. So you normally can't look at everything because there's so most museums have tens, hundreds or even millions of museums, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or even millions of objects. So you can't really look at everything, but you can look at them by group. And so you sometimes act by priority. So say, Zach, you, we'd let you be in charge of this museum and there's this dreadful store that's full of mould. Then we might be trying to push that up the priority list because we don't want the mould to carry on getting um, um, a problem. But Sam's saying, no, no, you, you can't go out and deal with the mouldy store. You've got to get these objects ready for the exhibition. So that can cause a little bit of tension. But there does come a point where sometimes things are disposed of by neglect. Museums, especially ones that are accredited, um, which is the sort of a, a standards badge in the UK, and it's a pretty good standard, but accredited museums aren't allowed to just get rid of things willy-nilly for museums. So if you did give a teacup from the Titanic to the museum, they couldn't then realise they could sell that on eBay for a few thousand pounds and sell it because they've got rules and they'd be sort of hounded out of all the professional bodies. 
And a few museums have tried to sell things, but by and large, the uh, consequences are pretty big. So, so you can give your Titanic teacup to the museum, be pretty confident that the museum won't sell it. But if you've given the museum 28 church pews, all of which are identical, and all of which are in appalling condition, then the museum might struggle to look after them, and they should never really have accepted them. They will try to persuade other people to, to take them off their hands, and there's a, a very formal process for doing that. But sometimes things do get so in poor condition that although we almost everything can be conserved, but the question is, do you want to conserve it? It's going to cost you tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds, and it'll all be fake when we finish all. It, you know, we'll have to repaint all of this or it'll still look so bad that no one's going to want to display it. And at that point, you can dispose of things through ethical channels because of, of their poor, poor condition. But actually, we don't really grasp that nettle nearly strong enough. You know, I've sort of had an open discussion about, you know, do objects die? And if so, who decides when they're dead? And there's always the possibility that something could be revived, you could do something with it. And what tends to precipitate decisions to get rid of things are either there's nothing but a bunch of maggots there or just a bunch of salts corroding away, or the objects are really, really large and therefore it's really worth doing the paperwork to get rid of them. And then people sometimes do. But there's an even more interesting perspective that objects die when they go into a museum. So just the very process of accessioning them kills them, ends their life. I wish that wasn't the case. I'd like it not to be the case. I think that being in a museum is part of their life. But you do see this again around the Colston statue thing, you know, or, or statues that people don't agree with. Get, get them out of the public sphere and put them in the museum like it's some kind of great human cryogenic freezer where we, where we fail to deal with things that we fail to deal with up to now. I think museums should be places where we actively deal with things and they shouldn't be places that things go to die. But, you know, there is a very reasonable argument that in the past museums have been um, well-managed burial grounds for objects. I have exactly this dilemma when it comes to uh, musical instruments in um, in museums, because in one sense, the spirit of a musical instrument is the tone and the sound that it makes and all the rest of it. But the flip side to that is that if you play a musical instrument relentlessly eventually you're going to have to replace the strings or the the, the workings that that make it make that sound and it ceases to be the original article um what are your thoughts on on those kinds of things and, and where that boundary may or may not lie do you know i just don't think that boundary is there whether you're you know grandfather's spade or you know theseus's ship most things have been a little bit replaced haven't they and this comes up um, I'm in Wales. So if you look, if you've got a, a coal mining museum, then in order to comply with the safety standards, you've got to keep replacing parts. If you've got a working train museum, you've got to keep the, the parts. If you've got a musical instrument collection, the, the same. If you're a contemporary art installation, some of these installations require movement, require um, experience, experiential in terms of being audiovisual and things like that. And they have to be remade in slightly different spaces. So I think there's a whole lot of these challenging questions and we sort of pretend that there's right and wrong answers when there clearly isn't and it comes down to I sort of mentioned damage you know what is damage what does it mean for something to be damaged and different people will have different views I'm guessing Zach that you think a musical instrument you never hear is damaged I, I can think there's a pretty strong argument for that but then you might say a musical instrument when all the parts are replaced is damaged and somewhere in between you have to have conversations about 
why do we have this thing? What are we keeping it for? Who's it for? What are we doing with it? And, and the answer was sometimes we'll be saying, we should be playing this or we'll play this once and we'll record it you know, or, or different things. So there's an organ in the National Museum of Wales, the Wednesday organ, that when the museum was open, when we went during COVID all the time, um, that was played. There was an organ recital, um, I think monthly, or might have been, been weekly, but that seems entirely appropriate to me that it's an organ. You should hear that's part of its value. That's part of its meaning. But it does then get into, should we be able to try on the clothes? <laughs> Which I think a little bit. You've... Um... You've written very recently about disruptive conservation and taken issue with the use of neutral colour rather than matched colour. This is due to infilling. What's the issue you have with this and what impact does it have when uh, we perceive these objects? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, so when you go to a museum, um, I see, and possibly, Sam, you've got a museum eye as well, and you'll see, and you'll know whether something's been conserved or not. But I don't think most people can. And in many respects, that's been what we've been trying to do with conservation. You know, we want to fix it, but not so you'd notice. So you can really just look at the object. So what we've tended to do, if we've needed to put a fill in something, we've tended to match it in a very kind of beigey, low visual impact kind of a way. There's a, a kind of a law in conservation about the six foot, six inches rule that you should be able to see it from six inches away, but not from six foot. And if you've done color matching and you're quite good at it, you sit there painting and painting and you think, oh, this is terribly visible. And of course, nobody else can see it because you've been looking at it for the last three months. So we actually end up making it barely visible to anyone except for the person who did it. And it kind of becomes a skill thing, you know, like I can make near visible, invisible repairs and look how good I am. And that is really good fun. It really is. It's really, really wonderful sort of thing. Oh, which bit do you think I did? (laughs) Because then you feel really smug. But that's um, that's a, you're taking the position on the history of the object. If you think of the musical instruments, if you think of military uniforms, if you think of your um, and uh, did you have tanks? Maybe if you think of these things as evidence of the past and as continuities of the past and, and messages about today. I mean, you might want to know. I mean, I can't imagine what it must feel like to have a tank drive at me. I've seen it on, you know, YouTube clips and things that people have been brave enough to stand in front of one. But I think I'd understand a tank in a very different way if I stood in front of one moving than if I stood in one in a museum all painted up and and not moving. So everything we do when we're deciding to make, to preserve something, everything we do has a consequence on what it looks like and what message it conveys. And what we were saying with disruptive conservation was why is what we do in conservation meant to be invisible? And it probably ties to the idea that, um, that, that once it's arrived in the museum, that's the end of the story. 
that's the, that's the story ending. And we were saying, well, no, the story hasn't ended. And if we're part of the story, why are we making our part of the story invisible? Why aren't we making it? Why aren't we making a claim? And it started with a, um, a student of mine, Ellie, Ellie Sweetnam, who wanted to paint her gap fields a vibrant colour. And <laughs> as a teacher, I was a little bit, um, well, no, that's clearly wrong. But luckily, I didn't say that out loud. I said, well, you know, come back and come up with a rationale. And she did. She spent about a year and a half thinking about rationales. And we talked about it an enormous amount. And it was really stimulating. And I think it's a really good prompt. It's really a kick to kick ourselves out of our comfort zones, to kick ourselves out of what's normal. Um, and the sense that we, because we're super, super skilled and we can do these fiddly repairs and you can't really see them and it's wonderful. A sense that that comes with it as sort of an inherent virtue or an inherent neutrality which when you then think about why something's in a museum, what story is it telling, whose stories are not being told, why do we assume that cleaning this is neutral or removing this dent is neutral or leaving this dent is neutral? Because all of those decisions, leaving the paint on that statue or taking it off, they both speak to a political and social perspective. So it's kind of like we felt it was quite disingenuous that as conservators, we sort of defaulted to neutral to invisible to we're not really here um, and we thought no actually if if the whole story of a thing is written on it then our contribution is part of its story um, that might be a good part and it might be a bad part but let's be more honest about that and let's acknowledge it and in Ellie's case she just wanted to paint a lot of things bright pink as well in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I wholeheartedly agree with a lot of what you say there because from a from a military museum perspective a lot of the collection that I manage has damage so its story comes from its damage and particularly with uh, with uniforms that have battle tears and and mm -hmm. and on some of them there is we've got a, a the VC a, a jacket that belonged to a VC winner from the first world war and it has a tear in it from where he was shot and it also has some some um some mud and it has some blood from where he was shot so it is the damage on it and what could be potential conservation issues that are then the important story behind it. And I think where it's a VC winner who's been shot in the jacket, we're all pretty on it. But I'm sure you've also seen people re-ribboning medals in your career. And that's a process where medals come in. And because we know the standard ribbon that each medal should have, there's a big box of ribbon somewhere on the shelf. People pull off the old one and put a new one on. And that then will take away evidence of how perhaps ribbons have been sewn on or cleaned or how horrible cleaning products had got all over the ribbons and stained them or how someone had worn them so much that they dropped loads of dinner on them. And that's a story too. Now, it's not a story you always want to tell. You don't always want to see someone's dinner on ribbons. But the ribbons that have been kept in a box are different from the ribbons that have been worn, you know, worn on to, to events, to dinners, to marches. They are different from the ribbons of someone who died, say, and his family kept them in a box. And we, I think we don't ask those questions enough. I think we, we, we get into habits and that we assume that what we're doing is, is good. It's for good. It's for the good of society. It's for the good of the objects. It's for the future. And then we start making decisions that are actually more political than we, we ought 
than we want to admit. Can I start talking about archaeological sites now then? Because this is another uh, kind of, perhaps not a, an area of conservation that immediately springs to people's minds, but once you, you've been to a few sites and you start to sort of talk to some of the people who work there, you become aware of the challenges they have of mm. opening up these sites for people to access them and learn about their history. But at the same time in doing that, you accept that there is going to be some wear and tear. And there are other you know, issues and challenges um, in conserving these sites. You know, climate change springs to mind as one of them. Um, metal detectors being another. Um, when it came to Hastings, there was a big challenge of trying to locate some kind of archaeological record on what was then believed to be the site of the battle. And they found that because there had been so much reenactment activity over the previous 50 or so years, they found it very hard to uh, work out what was a genuine archaeological finder and what wasn't. Mm. Um, so talk us through how those challenges end up being managed. I mean, this is a, a huge task and I wouldn't definitely not profess to be an expert in all these different things that I've been talking about. But archaeological sites in terms of their conservation and preservation, they do need the same balance of um the interventive and the preventive conservation. So you might, if you've got um, some walls, you may well need to do structural repairs. You may need to do it because it doesn't matter how many signs that say do not climb on these walls, you know that everyone will be climbing on those walls and sending me a picture on Twitter saying, look at me climbing on walls right next to the do not climb on the wall sign. So we know that people are going to do that. <laughs> so people are going to, you know, clamp on the stones. If there's a, a some stairs that go around a corner, then, you know, children will imaginary saw fight their way up and down those stairs. We have to accept how people will interact with archaeological sites, but it, it does represent a loss. It represents a gain and a loss, doesn't it? So the, the reenactors have had a great time and probably learnt quite a lot through the reenacting process, but there's also been a loss in that there's a loss of evidence now because the the, the, the information that you might have been able to extract from the patterns of the way that the grass grew or, you know, if they've been very sort of um, diligent reenactors, they may have used sort of traditional materials. And then it's very, very hard to date some of those things. If you, you know, if you've got flint, um, how to know whether it's archaeological. Well, the flint is all old, but whether the person napped it in the last 20 years or the last 200 years starts to get quite difficult. So we can manage our sites in terms of how people even uh, approach them and, how you even walk around a site, you'll start to see human tracks and walkways start to be created and those will start to carve into the landscape. And do you want people to walk around a space the same way it was walked around, in which case they follow the same paths? Or do you let people, or do you feel that they're now treading on the key bit of evidence and make them walk in different ways? So if you visit Stonehenge, you are absolutely managed on your on your walk. But if you if you go over to some of the other standing stones they're limiting where people can stand in order to sort of protect some of the evidence in the environment around it so we do get involved in decisions about um, intervention we do get involved in decisions about site management but you've also got issues around retention you know what stays on site and what gets taken away which is really really difficult and I have an inherent um, I don't love it that we take things from archaeological places to museums so that they're safe because we've preserved the physical thing, but we might have deconstructed it from its landscape. So, you know, things like standing stones. Um, I did a lot of work with somebody called Will Tugaskis, who was really interested in this. And, you know, a standing stone in the landscape it has a real meaning for that space and the people who put it there. 
And yes, it will wear away slowly outside and it won't wear away as much in the museum, but you've also lost something by disconnecting it from its view if you bring it inside. So there's real dilemmas about that sort of thing. We are going to take all the small finds to museum, but again, they can become quite separated then from the site. So you've got all that and then you've got sort of wider things, you know, what's going on in the area. Um, so some of the big caves um, with the rock art, for example, they can be affected by the water um, table. So you can be affected by if, if someone was to do a, a dam or to drain water, then that will change the water table, it'll change the composition of the soil and then there might be fertilizer applied or fertilizer not applied or pesticides and they will percolate through the soil and can come up as salts, for example, inside of the, um, the structures. And so, this, you know, and, and then obviously you have climate change, which structures which used to survive can't necessarily cope with sudden rainfall events. You mentioned a soggy, um, soggy ground earlier when we were talking about um, mold. But similarly, if water doesn't drain away quickly and things are standing in water, then they can really be very, very vulnerable. So it's all... It's all balancing act stuff. It's all balancing act that you either do through your enormous ego and the surety that you're right and your current generation knows everything. Or it's a balancing act that's done with consultation and documentation so that you say, let's talk about what makes the site important. Let's have that conversation with the community. Um, let's record what we do um, and what we've seen and what we found. And let's try to be as accountable as possible to what we've done. And let's try to engage people with the site because... If um, a species of animal is in an area where people haven't got enough money to eat and they can sell that species of animal for, for money, then it's vulnerable. And if an archaeological site is in an area where people don't like it or indeed resent um, people coming to visit that archaeological site or they simply want the stone to, to, to use as a building project and you have to buy stone elsewhere but they can knock it over by mistake, then that archaeological site is vulnerable. So there's different steps, but fundamentally that process of understanding, you know, why, why do we care about it? What do we know about it? Who should we be talking about what we're doing? And how do we share those decisions as many people as possible? Those things can underpin successful site management, which will then need the technical side of knowing what kind of mortar to use, knowing how to manage paths, knowing about railings and signs and interaction and all those other things. That was a long answer, wasn't it? <laughs> I am probably going to regret asking you this next question. Uh, so we've tonight heard about Zach's conservation disaster with his books. Do you have any conservation horror stories that you've come across that you're able and willing to share with us? Things that I really hate when you go, Gapfields are one of the ones, you know, when you go to a museum and you see some pot with some kind of salmon gap, it's normally salmon, I don't know why, but they're absolutely hideous shape or an absolutely hideous colour. They really annoy me. But I think in terms of like conservation horror stories, we'll say, I'll tell you one that I did. When I started out as a museum and collections advisor I was giving advice to museums and I was pretty much out of my depth because my training was very much objects and I'm ancient and back in the day we had some pretty um, numerical standards that were pretty unreflective and they were being sort of imposed regardless of context not because the people who drew the standards up were to blame but because we were kind of all in the habit of using them without thought and without consultation. And I went to an historic house that was timber framed. 
and it had a collection. And in order to preserve the collection, I recommended a set of conditions in terms of managing the relative humidity that would be in abstract perfect for those objects. Um, and in order to deliver that kind of without any thought, I started talking about drying out the building and there's various methods that they could do that. And this is a timber frame building that had stood as it was for generations. The timber was as damp as timber is when it's a building in Wales. The building had adjusted and acclimatized to that. The collections had adjusted and acclimatized to that. And uh, I told uh, a wiser, older colleague what I'd said in a pub. And he just laughed and laughed at me. And he said, you know, if they take your advice, this building will literally fall apart. <laughs> so I had to rush back to work and rephrase my, you know, letter and explain that perhaps I withdrew some of my previous advice. But luckily, I was so stupid and so naive that they didn't even have enough electricity on site. So they looked at my report and completely ignored it because they could never have even plugged in all the equipment I was suggesting they buy. Um, and that was a really good lesson in how little I knew and how to be careful about giving too much advice and, you know, not understanding the situation. And oh, I'm just so glad that I was so wrong that they didn't even have enough electricity, that they didn't give me my report the time of day, um, because then at least I didn't have to live with the consequences of all the dreadful things I told them to do. So that is, that really is a deep-seated horror for me, because I can still remember being in that pub. And the, the person was laughing, it was Bob Child, who was a bit of a conservation legend and very much a pub kind of a guy. And he's just, oh, you said I was there to swear, but he was taking the piss out of me all night for that, I can tell you. <laughs> See, I'm going to now turn the tables on Sam for asking you that question. Sam, have you got any conservation horror stories, other things that you've heard of? or uh, You don't necessarily have to name organisations by name. I mean, there was a very uh, high profile, very sad incident recently with uh, a certain castle um, that we'll call Burst Castle, um, which suffered uh, a very, very um, saddening collapse of, of one of their walls into the sea. Have you got any stories you want to share? <laughs> so I'm, I'm probably going to get myself a reputation tonight for the, I don't know, some kind of pest control woman. Because uh, earlier I was talking about spider poo and killing all moths that I see. But my, my conservation disaster story is uh, I was working at a very, very large museum uh, that has multiple sites. And on one of the sites, there is a big building with tanks in it uh, and some flowing water. And one day a visitor had said to one of the visitor services people, oh, I really, really, really liked your tank exhibition. It felt so realistic. I mean, even the dead rat. And we were like, oh, God. Oh, God. So we ran in there and just scooped up this dead rat. <laughs> That's the danger of having a working water feature in a museum. I've, you reminded me, when I was early in my career, I was line manager to a taxidermist conservator. And his freezer broke down and he used to, he was a very much a believer in collecting all dead animals just in case he needed them. So he had a freezer, his life's work of dead animals. And I was sent to make him get rid of it. <laughs> that was an absolute all time <laughs> low of an experience. The, the smell, oh my goodness me. Not just one dead rat, Sam, a whole freezer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh. And um, the other, the, the big one in the press that I remember, you, your heart must have broken as a conservator when the news came out of that, do you remember that um, Spanish Jesus painting that had been redone by a local woman? 
you know, isn't that so interesting? Because it is A, awful. But B, it's created like a huge economy around this church because she cared for this object. She made a right hash of it, if we're honest. Um, but what's become really interesting is it's become a far greater tourist attraction. So everything else in that church is now doing better than ever before because resources flowing. They're marketing the monkey Jesus, people call it. And so isn't it interesting how it's it's a legend now and how it's become a tourist thing in itself. And it's that whole thing about stories and stories ending and stories going forward and what mark you make. At first, it seems laughable. And, and there's, there was a, a Spanish castle that was also pretty quite, you know, sharp intake of breath in what they chose to do. But then at the end of the day, you've also got to catch yourself from saying, am I just applying my values here? You know, why are my values better than her values? Now, the lady who did the restoration, because in some respect, the lady who did the res restoration has brought more safety to that church than anyone had done before her. Whilst at the same time, I can't say that I advocate for that level of restoration. I'm not really defending it, but you know what I mean? It's always more complicated than it first seems. The monkey Jesus, that absolutely needs to be part of the tagline. I think we're going to have to change this now to insect sex and the monkey Jesus, a story of conservation. That sounds fine. I've managed to mention the Titanic, but I'm getting nowhere with the Tudors and the Nazis. <laughs> we'll manage it yet. Sadly, we're going to have to start wrapping this up because we are rapidly running out of time. So I want to turn to the future now what does the future hold for conservation are there any developments that you look at and are quite excited in terms of their potential are there any new practices on the horizon that you're sort of thinking actually this could be the future talk us through where we go from here on the technical side there's always an interest in sort of um you know, new advances. So laser cleaning was a big thing and it's coming into becoming quite normal. So the use of pulsating laser lights has, has really sort of normalized recently. And that's quite an exciting technique to watch because it sort of fires off um, darker layers with sort of no physical interaction. So that's really quite um, flexible, although you've got to be careful with the safety. Um, and people will be using nanomaterials and things like that to, you know, for, for consolidants and, and using interesting ways of getting things into things. I'm very interested in lighting because I'm more of a preventive conservator than anything else. And I think we can, I love it when, you know, something's faded and you can't really get the right sense of it, like a tapestry. I'm really interested in the use of light as a sort of restoration technique so that you project onto things sort of to correct them visually, because I think that perceptions are such hard things to correct and I think we could do some really interesting things and that way things could be appear to be quite well illuminated and we're actually doing less damage because we've been really selective through the bandwidth it's all to do with something called spectral power distribution and we can get quite into it but aside from the sort of tech stuff I think there are some pretty interesting things on the horizon I'll do um crowdsourcing Sam does like hunting down a bug so the English Heritage did a sort of a crowdsourced bug thing where people picked up a, an insect trap and trapped things in their homes and reported them. And that was a really brilliant way of, of monitoring the progress of certain insects across um, across the country. At the moment, we have the new silverfish, which is a new, worse and, and badder and much, much harder to stop. So it's not exciting and we're not looking forward to it. But, um, but certainly challenging the new, the new silverfish, one of it has been the crowdsourcing kind of activity. 
And I think the thing that I'm personally most excited about has been a new um, spirit of um, reflection. And the, I guess for me, it's the issues of um, the decolonization. People talk about decolonizing museums, and it's a bit of a, a buzzword, and I think it's sometimes overused. But I think that allowing more discussions, allowing more perspectives, actively seeking more perspectives and more discussions. It was something that has been done in the past, but I think it's becoming more common in a formal way. And I think that we're beginning to address cultural deficits and starting to talk about how what we do with our objects can be part of positive social change. And I'm personally, that sort of stuff really engages me. And I think the things like the Colston statue was such a really interesting possibility in discussing, you know, who are we as a society? What do we want to say about ourselves? What do we want to pass forward? What do we, you know, we're not just putting things in a container and burying it for 50 years. We're putting these in our museum and we're having a conversation about what do you want to see about this? What do you want to say? And and not necessarily expecting museums to be all about being a voice of authority and much more about a place where multiple different voices are aired, different perspectives are, are shaken out. So I guess I, I'm more excited with that, but it's still pretty exciting to play around with spectral power distribution of lamps as well. <laughs> but boo to the new silverfish and the very bad pesticide. Yes, you're filling me with... with with nightmares now of ideas of these new silverfish coming from my archive collection at least I now know what the next thing I'm going to brutally murder is so that is that is good thank you very much Jane uh, for this hopefully now listeners get a really really good insight into a side of museums that people don't really see from the front end where can people find your work if they're interested in finding out more oh I google really well if you use the word conservation or Cardiff after my name then things I've written will tend to pop up the university has you know you have a, a biography and most of my recent stuff has been open access so you can actually get hold of it relatively easy and on a lot of the academic sites where people share things but if people um I won't give my email out but um I, I go again I google up pretty easily so if there are things that I've written and you want to get hold of them then you can always drop me an email I'll try and ping them back um that's, um, yeah, I do my best. Email, like everybody else gets on top of me. So sometimes I fail, but I try. So, you know, hopefully you can find me. And I'm also, I'm also on Twitter where you'll see my opinions about Banksy all the time, where I'm really, really frustrated with the idea that you save things by taking them away from where they were put and put them inside of a gallery, which just does bother me. And other things like that. Um, I did sort of talk about the course and statue on Twitter as well. So you can, you know, you can engage with me, disagree with me, argue. It's quite good fun. That's, you know in a polite way without too much um let's you know in a let's explore how we don't necessarily agree but we don't need to use you know insults kind of a level jane this has been so much fun thanks very much for joining us well i was really worried that this would be very very dull so i'm glad that you're using the word fun <laughs> nice to be it's been really good fun to to join you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 